Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. Yes, I mean you. Your attention, please. This is the PowerShell Podcast. PowerShell Podcast. It's all about PowerShell and the PowerShell community. We have with us today a man who is so much a part of the culture that he scarcely needs an introduction. And now, here's your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. Hey everybody, welcome to the PowerShell Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan, with uh, Andrew Plaw. And today we have a special ghost a guest. You're not a ghost. I hope not. A ghostly guest? Go uh, uh, I go by Stevie Coaster, but yes. uh, it's uh, Valdinger. Uh, most people don't know this, but uh, I knew you before you were famous. Yeah. Yeah, you swung by our you offices did. to shoot a webcast. And yep. We, we didn't know at the time that you were, about to, you were about to go on and be a superstar of PowerShell. I don't know about superstar, but... <laughs> I know about superstar. You're a superstar, man. Sure. <laughs> All right. So, so give us, give us the, who is Steve Waldinger? Who is Steve Waldinger? Um, well, I'm me. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a farm kid turned IT guy from Ohio um, who frequently annoyed his parents by tearing apart anything that plugged into a wall when he was younger. Um, which was advantageous as technology changed in the agriculture industry. And all of a sudden, more and more things for the farm plugged into the wall. All of a sudden, I was the kid that knew what to do with those things. Uh, so I decided to make a career out of it. And I've been doing this for, hold on, I'm 35 now, 16 years I've been at it. So it's been not, a while. It's been a, a while. Year. Yeah, across a lot of industries, done a lot of things for a lot of different people and kind of discovered PowerShell like five, six years ago, something like that. And the bug bit me and I haven't stopped since. It happens a lot. It's fantastic. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a gateway drug to so many cool things. Which which is uh, interesting because when we had Jess Pomfret on, she said that... Uh... DBA tools was a gateway drug for PowerShell, and mm-hmm. now PowerShell is a gateway drug. We're just all kinds of gateways here. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of doors you can walk through. We're hooked on phonics, you could say. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you mentioned PowerShell. So when was this? When did you discover PowerShell? Where were you in your career? You were a sysadmin uh, or something? I was like, and just a step up from help desk. Really, I think my title was like IT assistant. So really. It was a kitchen sink kind of position. I was doing most of the server admin stuff. I was doing a lot of the help desk stuff. Uh, and then there was one other guy on staff that kind of took care of the programming reporty type stuff. And that's where I started messing with Exchange Server, which is kind of the the journey of a lot of people in a PowerShell. They, they get Exchange 2007 installed, and then all of a sudden, anything they do in the GUI, they show you the... PowerShell that actually ran to do the thing is like, man, that that's kind of cool. I don't think you can be an exchange admin at this point without. Right. Without yeah. PowerShell. Yeah. Well, in 2013, a lot of the stuff for my GUI went away. Yeah. Because it was only able to be done via the PowerShell snap in, which was fine with me at that point because I had started playing with it. Things like giving HR something that they could give me information and it would just process it 
when a hire or a fire happened and they would get accounts and email addresses and file shares and groups and, you know, all that good stuff that took me 45 minutes to do prior to knowing what the heck PowerShell was is now something that I don't have to worry about anymore. It just kind of happens whenever HR does something. Um, and that was kind of my start was yeah. I'm a two person team with a whole bunch of users and no time. So here's this tool over here that I can spend a little bit of time up front with it, learning it, and then get all of that time back to focus on stuff that really matters, like fixing the backups that haven't worked properly in three months or cleaning up the file share that is now like three terabytes bigger than it actually needs to be. So all that stuff that just kind of got thrown to the wayside, I was able to get that time back and work on that stuff um, and so, leave that place better than I found it. That's always been a goal of mine, no matter what job I've taken, is to leave the place better than I found it when I started. So your drive wasn't, oh, I don't want to do these tasks. Yours was necessity driven by understaffing. Yeah, yeah, quite a bit, quite a bit, yeah. I, I think that's a... Uh, position I found myself into a two man team where it's like you, the only way to do things any, what any way proper would be to use automation and, and probably mm -hmm. PowerShell to do a lot of things. And kind of, yeah. once you get started down that rabbit hole, it's hard to stop. You almost it rely is. on it, right? You kind of can't go back to a manual way and also kind of changes the way you approach problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely something that's taught me a lot better methodologies um, in terms of like starting a project. Uh, I spend a lot more time up front on the UX of the thing than I do on the actual thing. Um, how is the end user affected by this change that I'm going to make? How can I keep it so that they don't bug me with issues on this thing? Like, how can I hold their hand through errors so that they can fix it themselves and understand what they did wrong to either resubmit the form a correct way or they're holding the script wrong and they need to run it a different way. Um, so the UX of the thing is kind of where I spend a lot of my focus anymore. Um, and it's been that way for a while now, but very much more specifically once I started at Chocolatey because um, the impact of the changes is just so much bigger than anywhere I've ever dealt with. Like Chocolatey's got a few million users that that use the tool everywhere else I've been has been at max a few hundred. So right. when I do, when I put input towards a product, like I, we have a whole team of very, very smart engineers that actually works on chocolatey and produces chocolatey. But me being the support manager for chocolatey, I hear of all the warts that goes on with the product product and how our end users and our customers are using it. So I have a, a pretty good voice in changes that get made. Like, hey, we're using it like this now, but I think the user experience would be better if we do it this way. And that's that's been pretty beneficial. So with uh, everything you do touching so many people, is that is that what that make you more comfortable with like doing presentations and talking PowerShell? Or because I remember you were always active in forums. Like you've always been yeah. forward. Yeah, like. I don't know. People have never scared me. Like, we're all just people, right? At the end of the day, I'm just talking to people. And there's nothing 
to me, there's nothing scary about that. Like, I know at the end of the, the day that everybody that's listening to me talk in a presentation or whatever, they want to see me win just as bad as I want to win. And I'm there to help them do better or be better or think differently about a certain problem domain that they're they're dealing with or whatever. Um, so I approach it from that way. And that reduces so much stress on me when I'm going into a thing. Um, like Summit was the perfect example. Like they had a cancellation and they asked me to to do a talk. The day of the cancellation, like two hours before. And I was like, okay. So I, I it remember was, it was fine. I remember walking into the break room on that and you just had your laptop open. I asked what you're doing. It's like, oh, I'm preparing for a talk later today. And that might be the most badass thing I've ever seen. And by all accounts, like people loved it. I know uh, Jason Helmick was yeah. thrilled with what you put out. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I threw something together. I knew how much time I had and I had, I had the advantage of kind of playing with it on stream a couple of times uh, before I gave the talk. So I knew kind of what the content was going to be and how long I would need to like dive into each of the pieces and parts. And then I just kind of organically let everything else fall together while I was standing in the room. And the important thing when you're talking to, to people is if you have a time limit, knowing that time limit and understanding how to stay within the confines of that. Um, as you do it more, you get better at it. But yeah, as when you're first starting out, like I find for me, like outlining what I'm going to do and like writing down minutes for each thing is really beneficial, at least to start. And then when I do a run through or whatever, um, I check myself against my outline and then I adjust from there. It's like, yeah, my intro stuff only took me two minutes where I had budgeted for four and a half. So I've got two minutes where this thing was thin. I can kind of fatten that out a little bit because I've got this time that I can move around. So um, it's all in how you prep. And your talk was about crescendo, was it? It was, yeah. What is a... Uh... Crescendo. I know we mentioned it, I think, two episodes ago briefly, but yeah, a quick little overview of Crescendo. Yeah. So Crescendo is like the coolest piece of PowerShell that's come out in recent wow. memory. Um, it's really a development accelerator is what it boils down to around native commands. Um, it allows you to really quickly take a native command that's available in Windows or some tool that you've installed on top of Windows or Linux or Mac, it doesn't matter. Um, some native command that doesn't have a PowerShell equivalent and make that PowerShell equivalent. And I think it just general availability was like in March, like early March. Like it's mm -hmm. brand new. It hasn't been out. It's, yeah, it's, it's not been, been out. Long. It's been beta and pre-release for a while, but the general availability is is pretty new. So it's one thing where if you dive in, you can be you can be one of the forefront of an awesome new technology. Mm -hmm. So Steve, yeah. you say this is one of the coolest bits of PowerShell you've seen? It is. It is. It's so clever in design and how it works in that you don't have to be a PowerShell expert to use it. Um, you just have to understand a JSON schema to use the tool. So you define how you want to interact via PowerShell in this JSON schema file. You give it the native command that you want to run 
whether that be Vagrant or Docker or IP config or ping, cube, anything. Right? Yeah, yeah, whatever you want. Cube control, whatever, or QD control or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I know people have pet names for Kubernetes stuff. Uh, I call it cube control. Um, all of that stuff and those native command have native commands have parameters that can be passed to them and like different sub commands and things like that. You can define all of that stuff in the schema of the JSON file and then the corresponding PowerShell commandlet parameter that you want to line up so that when you pass like out file, the parameter on the native command might be dash out or dash dash out. And it does that symbiotic relationship for you. It wires that up automatically so that things just become a more PowerShell way of doing things. Uh, and then you have the ability to take the output of those native commands, which is nine times out of 10 string data. Maybe it's format, maybe it has the ability to output as JSON, which is easier to consume, but a lot of tools don't. So it's usually some form of string data and Crescendo gives you the ability to write parsers, output handlers for that output data. It so like a way that, to turn, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it takes that string data and turns it into PowerShell objects. And once nice. you have that PowerShell object back, you have the full might of PowerShell at your fingertips. You can pipe that along to other commands. You can pipe that to select object, where object, group object, for each object, whatever so, you want to do. So I have a question where the output is string. There's no real way natively to define, you know, like to break up the string to what you want. So do you have to put some sort of like, do you have to put the logic within your JSON that says the output to this, do you have to break it up? So grab this part for this uh, object type or does it? It's really flexible. It's really flexible in that you can have an output handler per command so that if you know that when I run this command, the output looks like this, your parser handles that aspect. Whereas if you run the command with a different subcommand, for example, the output is different in that scenario. So you can have a parser that handles that. So it can be really, really flexible in what you emit as your PowerShell object. And then inside of that parser, you have the ability to skip around in the output and throw things away as well. Vagrant is a good example of that. Like. If you run Vagrant global status, for example, the last seven lines of that output are boilerplate nonsense information about the tool. They have no business being in the object. So you can just say, hey, select the first X lines or skip the last seven lines, for example, because you know that seven lines of the end of the output are that garbage. So just skip them. And then you only get your data back and you can parse that into an object. So it's really, really flexible. So this is one, I haven't, I haven't uh, tinkered this one myself, but everyone I've mentioned that's used it has just, they're in love with it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean- It's I mean, great. That, that's probably a good indicator that I should start looking into it because I haven't heard anything negative about it. I've just heard nothing but Glowbridge, which in the PowerShell community, you know, we're also supportive. If it wasn't that case, but there would be something somewhere, but this one is all just... Right, right. I mean, there are things that need improvement with it. Of course, it's brand new. Yeah. There's going to be stuff that gets discovered that needs to be fixed. 
but that's just part of the process of releasing something new. At some point, you have to get it out there so people use it so you discover those things. There's only so much that you can figure out on your own. I mean, the great part about being new is it is open source, mm -hmm. and this is a great opportunity to contribute to the community in mm -hmm. some way. If you yeah, see something, absolutely. you have a question, you can go to the get and open up the question on that, and they're going to appreciate getting the question because maybe it's something they haven't thought of or maybe something they know. Either way, they're going to enjoy the dialogue. So if you are going to dive in and you see something, instead of just saying, well, I don't like that, head head to the get and, and contribute. Yeah, exactly. Uh, pull requests greatly appreciated, right? No, no one's going to be grumpy about uh, getting extra advice from an external perspective. Yeah, so, exactly. So, Stevie, just to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. So, at a super high level, there's kind of like two things you need to be concerned with with Crescendo. It's mm -hmm. the JSON configuration, which like you're mentioning, kind of like aligns parameters, kind of mm -hmm. sort of thing, tells, tells that. And then there's also the output handlers, which converts mm -hmm. the string into objects. And those mm -hmm. are like the kind of two big things to be concerned with, with the Crescendo project, or is there any other kind of big things? Yeah. I mean, that that's really it. Uh, you can be super minimalistic with, with your JSON and only provide enough to make the thing work. But the JSON schema has all the bits and pieces in it that gives you like all the help and everything like that, examples, usage, synopsis, description, like all the help stuff is in the schema as well that you can define. Um, so it gives you a fully working, well-documented PowerShell module that you would expect to use or expect to find uh, from the gallery. That's awesome. Yeah, now, it's great. Without getting too technical and too deep, I've heard about some interesting advanced use cases people have thought of. Um, what What are some, like, whenever you think of this being a really cool thing, what are some example use cases that are really kind of spark your creativity? Uh, for me, it allows me to, like, give a schema to a development team. Say you're on a development team that produces some real cool whiz-bang C-sharp.net application for your company. There's a command line app that, that they produce that your development team uses or some some part of your business uses this command line application as part of their day-to-day -day job. But you've got members of the team that really like PowerShell and would prefer to work in PowerShell, which is, of course, fine. Like that's, to me, that's the way you want to do it anyways. Um, but if your development team isn't great at writing PowerShell, but they're really good at writing C-sharp, you could do the hard work of creating the schema for the thing for them and then bolting that schema to their development pipeline. So every time their GitHub Action runs or their Azure DevOps pipeline runs or their Circle CI runs or whatever you're using for CI, Team City, whatever that is, as long as you've got the Crescendo module installed on that runner, you could, as part of the build process, after the application has been compiled and you've got the executable, you process the JSON schema file from Crescendo and you get a subsequent matching PowerShell module at the same time that you can then publish to an internal NuGet feed or to the gallery or whatever you want to do. So you get the best of both worlds. People that want to use the executable on their own can use the executable and it's there and it's installable and people that want to 
do the same thing, but do it in PowerShell so they can do extra processing and things like that with it, have the same capabilities and they line up one-to-one with each other. There's nothing in the command line application that can't be done in the PowerShell module. Sounds really cool. Yeah, like that's the... That's the biggest draw of it to me is, and again, that's kind of the point. It's an accelerator. It, It's kind of the thing that gets you to the thing, right? Right. It's kind of like if you want PowerShell everywhere, well, this is a quite yeah. a great step in the right direction to empowering yeah. developers to, okay, here's the PowerShell module. And that mm-hmm. can, as this kind of becomes more standardized and trusted, it, cr- having a crescendo kind of thing as part of your build process can just be the standard. We can have PowerShell modules with help and all that kind of stuff everywhere we go. Mm-hmm. That would be awesome. And I, I think that's the kind of future that this opens up for us. Yeah, absolutely. And again, there's there's stuff that could be better to make that even more reliable and better uh, at, at the end of it when you get that module out. But again, this is brand new stuff. It's not been GA'd for that long and people are just now starting to use it. So I'm excited to see what even three months down the road looks like for the next release of, of Crescendo. So, so this is one of those, uh, I mean, it, it's cool to talk about, but seeing is better. And mm-hmm. I know you gave a presentation for the Research Triangle PowerShell Users Group. Yeah. Uh, that's not up yet. Uh, just looking at it. But when that's available, there should be a video where you actually are showing some of the... Yeah, yeah. So if you go to youtube.com slash RTPSEG, that's their their uh, YouTube channel. Um, as soon as that gets processed and everything, that'll be up there and people can take a look at it. Um, I played with a couple of things during that presentation. I, did, I know I did Vagrant, but I know I spent a fair bit of time uh, creating a, a module for OpenSSL as well. Okay, so that's definitely, once that's up, we'll modify our show notes to add that link as well. Just because, cool. I mean, talking about it's cool, but I would be curious to see the actual visual part of it when mm-hmm. it's showing that yeah. one. So we want to make sure we get that link up there. I, I mean, I, I've brought this up a couple of times in previous episodes, but you gave a talk a year ago at, at a, a, the virtual summit about best practices when making a module. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you're looking about, you're starting a PowerShell, you want to start making your own modules, anything, and you want to know exactly what to do, I just want to, I think that one should be up now in, for the summit. It should be. put yeah. that link up there because uh, I struggle with that. There's so many little rules I don't think about. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recommend anyone that's looking to take their scripts and turn it into a module so it can be used everywhere. They, they go watch that video and they can, because everyone making better modules makes it better for everybody. Right? Yeah. I, I spent a lot of time when I was thinking about that talk, like, what do I want to convey to these people? And it was kind of two parts. I wanted to speak to the people that were actually going to use the thing and also the people that were writing the thing as well, because um, both are important. Um, the the developer experience is just as important as the end user experience is. So spending time like making good commit messages when you're writing the thing is just as important as what the help is for the thing. Because it just it answers so many questions and even helps future you out later when you're 
when you've got an issue that's been raised against the repository for the thing and it's a really well done issue but if you have really good commit messages it really helps you go back into the the history of the repository and see exactly where you introduced that bug because your commit message references kind of the same thing that is going on. Somebody says, hey, this commandlet is doing this, and your commit message is like, hey, add widget to this commandlet. Pretty good chance that that commits the one that forked everything. Whereas if your commit message is added some more stuff and you push that up, what'd you add? Stuff. Yeah, stuff. Yeah, 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 exactly. What is this? Now you have to dive into the commit and see the diff and go through that nonsense. And if it was a big commit, which is another thing, it's better to do a bunch of little commits against a bunch of files than it is to do, here's all my little edits across 30 files, and here's one big giant commit that you have to review. That's that's not great. <laughs> it, it's fine to squish that down into one before you merge it. That's fine. But when you're doing a review, it's I personally I like to keep the commits separate and like keep a commit profile that I've touched. That way people can go into the individual commits, see the file that was touched, understand via the message what has changed. And it's just a so much smoother review process. Um, especially if you're working either on an open source project with a bunch of maintainers or on a team internally with a bunch of coworkers that maintain the same module, like help each other out, man. Like that's just quality of life stuff. Yeah. It's one of those, if you master it, master it for your personal use, it's going to make it easier to contribute in the external. Cause if you go, Hey, I noticed this is an issue and you follow all the proper procedures, the people that are going to either accept, or deny that issue it's going to be more likely to be accepted if they can follow mm -hmm. along with all the proper procedure. Yeah. yeah. So we'll make sure we get that one up there just because I, I, I think I brought that up in probably two or three of our episodes already just because I loved that talk and it was a huge I'm glad you me. liked it. Yeah. It, it was I'm glad really you good. liked it. R rated you five stars at, at the, at the, for that event. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, so if, if you're interested in something you want to start committing or helping out in different projects but you're not sure about the format and everything – Either go watching that talk will be helpful, and then also somewhere in that repository, they're probably going to have a like a framework for how they want things to look. So you just have to take your best practices, fit it within that framework, and then you're mm -hmm. it's gonna it's gonna be about smoother process for you. Yeah, I know for us here at Chocolatey, like all of our open source stuff has a contributing .md file inside of the repository that people that want to help out can read that document and understand okay, when I do a commit, we want the commit message to look like this. When we do an issue, we want it to look like this. And we have issue templates for everything, whether it's a bug or a feature request or whatever. Here's a template. And yeah. it's very prescriptive. I think that most uh, repos that are kind of like well-established will have it so that whenever you go to click new issue, it'll have, like Stevie's talking about, a template to kind of tell you what needs to be filled out, what questions mm -hmm. to answer beforehand. So... You don't need to go in blind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The more information that you can give the developers up front so that they don't have to pester you and eliminates a lot of that back and forth, the better because it just speeds up the cycle. 
Yep. And and I think we've harped on it before, but open source is a discussion. So when you bring more information to a discussion, it makes things go a lot smoother and there's a lot less unneeded kind of back and forth just to yeah. go over the basics. Yeah, it just can like, be a little less combative as well. If you say, yeah. hey, we need all of this stuff so that we don't have to pester you or fight about it. Like we could not be able to reproduce it because we're holding it wrong compared to you. So we can't reproduce it and we'll go back to the issue and be like, this isn't a problem. What are you talking about? And then the end user gets annoyed that we can't see the bug and they get angry. And then you get bad comments on the issue. And then you have, not only do you have a code problem to deal with, you have a people problem they have to deal with because that stuff's all out there in the open in public. So there's a whole optics thing to running a, very well-established open source thing too. You want to create a culture that's very welcoming and inclusive and and helpful. And that kind of stuff just, I kind of have a pretty low tolerance for, for that sort of thing. And this is something I actually just found out today that I'm interested. You have a Twitch channel where you don't play video games on it. You code things. Yeah, like, I do. That yeah. is fantastic. That's- I don't. I don't play video games. It's like I used to, I spent way too many hours playing video games and then I had a kid yeah. and I had way too many hours to watch a kid and raise <laughs> a kid and video games kind of fell off the radar and I haven't picked them up since. Like she's old enough now that she takes care of herself. I could have all the time in the world to play, but I, I'm just not interested anymore. So I just streaming, like- it's a great way to do it though. Yeah, so Twitch Twitch TV, but you're not free to games for coding. That seems like a brave thing because there's no there's no way to hide anything in that. Everything is open. Yeah, there isn't. It's it's so much fun though. And it's just one more avenue that you have to, to help people to get better. Like people can see the way you write code and the way your mind works when you're trying to solve a problem or add a feature or fix a bug or whatever it is it's just here's exposure to another way of doing it another style of doing it and i know plenty of people that that do that now that stream writing code on twitch uh there's a whole there's a whole group of people called the live coders that that do it um they're typically net developers like doing c sharp code um but yeah, they, they stream all the time uh, on Twitch. And I know Gary that works with us here, uh, Gary Ewan Park, one of our engineers, he streams every Monday on chocolatey things like open source chocolatey things or uh, his cake project that he helps maintain, which is like a, it's a build tool for like helping you build your stuff for CI, basically. It's a very prescriptive way of building an application um so he helps maintain that as well and he's got a lot of followers like he's a lot of people turn up to watch him write code and it's really fun do you go in with like a game plan of i want to attack this issue or this issue or just kind of you just go in and just start going yep typically when i'm doing a stream it's just I want to write some code and I have no earthly idea what I'm going to do or what I'm going to get into. Um, Sometimes I'll have a particular thing in mind that is like, 
while I'm working on this, it would be cool for people to be able to watch me work on this. Um, so I will every once in a while kind of have an idea what I want to do, but more often than not, I'm kind of just flying by the seat of my pants. And my, my process is ugly. I don't think I could do that. So my end result I can make look beautiful, but my process to get there is horrendous. And I'm sure people would be appalled. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and stay away from that side of it. <laughs> don't be so sure. Yeah. Think don't. about it like this. You can learn by doing. You can learn the first time you're putting it out there. Maybe somebody has a great suggestion and all of a sudden you're doing things better. Or maybe we all work different ways. Um, to go back to what you were saying earlier, though, I learned a bunch from watching Josh do some live coding way back in the day. Because like you're saying, Stevie, seeing the way someone approaches a problem, well, it can show you how to approach problems. Until I saw someone write a module and like kind of approach things live, I had never seen anyone do that before. Mm -hmm. And by, you know, if you can take advantage of like Stevie's expertise, like you were saying, like 16 years, a whole bunch of time in PowerShell, um, you can kind of, if you watch a live stream, you can see it through their perspective. And uh, for me, it, it's shaved off years, it feels like, because I was able to like kind of replicate that mindset that I saw in a live stream. Yeah. So. Yeah. It, it helps. It really does. I'd, yep. I'd be curious on seeing how people approach what they don't know. Like, how do they go about researching? So they hit something, it's like, I haven't encountered this before. How do they go about finding the answer to that live? Like, is it just... Oh, you you see that when I stream? Uh, that's the bulk of my stream is, what the hell is going <laughs> on? And how do we figure this out? So it's a lot of Stack Overflow and Docs and throwing things in a terminal and running it and seeing what happens. Like <laughs> so I code in anger a lot on, on Twitch. You're, you're a calm person, but I want to see what happens when the object type you're expecting is, is like a different type. I want to see how you, I, I, bet, <laughs> I bet we don't see calm Stevie at that point. Every once in a while, non calm Stevie comes out, but thankfully that's kind of over as it well. Tends to fade with children. Yeah. There was a time, but there's less time now. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm going to try to catch you on a bad day now. Okay. I want to see right. it. Don't push him. Don't push don't, him. Don't push me. I'll, I'll be in there. I'll be in there just throwing barbs. Yeah. <laughs> don't give me an idea on a Friday. It ruins my weekend. All right. Well, I mean, is there anything uh, that you really want to dive into after Crescendo or anything you're talking about, you're working on, anything that you've discovered recently you're like, that is awesome or is it pretty much it's been all all crescendo recently yeah really really recently it's just been crescendo everything else has just kind of been you know powershell day in day out powershell stuff um and then the bulk of my time has been spent just doing stuff for chocolatey just work stuff which Stup is stupid work wanting to yeah contribute. which is like super fun and everything like i wake up every day going to a job that doesn't feel like a job. So it's pretty great in that regard. That, that makes it nice. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell them that if work ever starts to feel like work, that's time. Then it's time to start looking around. Yeah. I heard someone mention, I don't remember where this was, but like, you know, they're at the point in their life where they want to volunteer their efforts at work. They want to choose where to go, where they mm -hmm. feel like their efforts are going to be valued, where they're going to enjoy what they do and enjoy their coworkers. And yep. it'd sure be nice if like the more and more companies were enjoyable to work for and 
You know, I yeah. bet they'd be more productive if they didn't have such toxic environments where people end up spending their efforts on not work things because of the yeah. stress system. I think it matters a little bit too about like the company that you're at, like the size of the company as well. Like it's pretty easy if you're in a really large org to kind of get lost in the noise and just become a cog in the wheel and feel like your impact isn't as big as you either you think it is or it could be just because there's so many people around you. Mm -hmm. Whereas here at Chocolatey, we're really small. We're, we're under 20 people. So it's really easy for us to collaborate and work together and come together and make decisions and very, very tight knit crew of people. And we all kind of have the same goal. So it's, it's super fun to it's work nice with everybody that they do. It's nice when your goals are aligned on that. Yeah. Makes it easier. Yeah. Uh, when I started at PDQ, I think I was employee 19. So I, mm -hmm. I know exactly, I know the feeling exactly. Yeah. I know both of you are big fans of APIs. So when it comes to authenticating to APIs, mm -hmm. where do you get started? Like, okay, you read the documentation. Do you have any modules that you recommend people use? Uh, I know OAuth is a big thing. It can be a little challenging. and Yeah, like, that's kind of a really hard thing to answer because APIs can implement authentication vastly differently, and they can support more than one method of authentication as well. Like, I don't really use any APIs that have OAuth available or if they have OAuth available, they also have like bear token authentication available as well, like standard authentication. Um, so I tend to steer more towards that route just because, yeah, it is easier to say, hey, here's a, a PowerShell credential object. Take that and turn it into a bearer token that you can pass in the header. And that's that's a really simple way to get started. Whereas OAuth is, okay, you need to make a call to this endpoint, get something back and store it, and then use that in subsequent yeah. calls. So there's there's extra steps involved when you need to go to OAuth. Um, but typically, and I say typically, uh, the documentation for the API is really good around the OAuth. Um, and if it's not, if the API documentation is trash, I'm probably going to go look for another product if I'm being completely honest. And I'm that way with a lot of things. If your documentation isn't helpful, I'm going to go find something that is. Because I don't want to... how good it is if no one adopts it and documentation yeah, is Yeah, exactly. 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 If your tool is hard to learn how to use it, I'm going to go find a tool that isn't. Because I don't want to waste my time fiddling with something when I could go use this other thing that allows me to get started way faster. Yeah. It's a sign of a company that's not really that efficient too. It's like their priorities are in the wrong places. You're probably going to encounter a lot of other issues along the way if they don't even have good docs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's true of company stuff, like actual products that you can purchase or whatever, but it's true of like open source maintainers as well. Like you got to put in that effort up front to make your docs good. Like, a, a nice readme, good docs for all the stuff that you're doing. Like, that stuff matters. That stuff matters more than the actual code you write. And have you found that 
as you see the value, because now you know how important it is, you really are aligned with uh, the impact of documentation on the developer experience, on the customer experience and all that. Do you find that it's easier to write docs when you actually know how important it is? It is because I find myself putting myself in the shoes of the customer when I'm writing the doc. Like, okay, I'm Joe at Acme Corp and I'm going to use this tool and learn how to use this tool. What information do I want on this page that tells me what to do? So here's all the information about all the stuff that you can pass to this thing. Here's how you can use it. Here's a bunch of examples on how to do it. And here's some information on what you get back. Uh, here's some related information. Say you are like creating something new link to how to get rid of it as well. Like all that stuff correlates. So in PowerShell world, that's like you have your ads and your sets and your gets and your news and you know all of those verbs for your commandlets. They're all related to the thing. So get thing, new thing, add thing, remove thing, set thing. All of those things should link together in the online docs so that if somebody is saying add something, there should be a link to set something so that once they've added the thing, they know how to update the thing. And then from set should be removed so that once they've set the thing, they should be able to remove the thing. And there should probably be links to all the other things across all the pages so that the add page has get set new and the set page has add, get, and remove, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So that people don't have to bounce around 10 million places to find where they go. It's just a link at the bottom of the dock that they can go somewhere else to learn the next step. But yeah, having, having that man mentality of the user when you're writing the documentation, the documentation kind of writes itself. It, it sh definitely shouldn't be an afterthought. You should think about it because if you don't have good documentation, it, it will just result in less people using it or people having a bad experience using it. Yeah, so yeah. Matters. You know, it's kind of like they have that mentality of like TDD or test-driven development where you write your tests first and then based on how your tests are laid out, that's how you write your code. Sometimes I like to think about it like documentation-driven development. Like, here's how I want to use the tool. Here's how I'm going to tell the person how to use the tool. Okay, this is how we're going to use it. That's now my outline for writing the function. Are, are you looking for a fight with the Pesha community? Because I think this is how you get a fight. No. No, <laughs> no I think that... No, I like where you're going with that. Steve. Yeah, it's and just I, different. It's <laughs> just a different way to think about it. Like test-driven development is great. Like that is a great way to write tools. It's just a same thought, uh, just slightly different approach where you do the test-driven yeah. development to make sure you have your test in place because just like documentation, tests are something that are frequently skipped. Right, exactly. So it, it just it, makes sure that you're writing your code and that all these tests that you've written are now passing because mm -hmm. you've added the thing that makes them pass. Yeah, you can still kind of do it with help-driven development. And it's funny yeah. you mention that because I remember way back in the day when I first got into PowerShell, June Blender did a talk about like help-driven development or documentation-driven development where you write the help for your PowerShell before you write everything else, which is what mm -hmm. you're mentioning here. Um, and yeah, I, I find that a very interesting way to approach things um, because similar to a test, you have your unit test where you define like what's a pass and what's a fail. Well, mm -hmm. kind of, sort of, in your help, you also define expectations. This yeah, example, exactly. and you, know, you can also, on the back end, create a test to verify things. So, yeah. yeah so what exactly. we need is like a, 
I got a module idea for us. It's something that links pester with documentation. You build your documentation and it will build your pester test off of that, which then does test-driven development. I'm going to combine it all. I'm, I'm about to be ultra rich. I'm not going to, I'm not going to open source this. I'm going to turn <laughs> it back on the community. You're going to license this. <laughs> this, now, this that, that would actually be relatively interesting to introspect your documentation to write your tests. I, I don't even know how to begin to approach it. I mean, it's just, it's an interesting idea. But, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure it can be done by somebody oh, way yeah. smarter than I am. Yeah, I don't know if they have to be that smart. Mm. Right? Just get help, grab the example, evoke expression. You know, it wouldn't be that good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, he's, <laughs> he's half easy. done. Yeah. He's half done. This no. will be released this weekend. this weekend. It depends on the type of module <laughs> if you could even do it, too. Because, like, it could get real confusing if you have to, like, connect to something or whatever. Yeah. yeah mock oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But um, maybe we don't have to get into full detail about it, but it's worth noting that there are some really good modules for PowerShell projects to like deal with documentation. Like, for example, maybe generating Markdown or, you know, mm -hmm. what are some kind of like go-to modules? Yeah, for so my go-to is PlatyPS, which takes comment-based help or uh, MAML. It, depending on if you're doing compiled C-sharp modules or just straight-up PowerShell modules. Like, it supports both things. But it takes that help and converts it to Markdown. And then you can even, like, process it into YAML and other things if you want to. Um, but so wait, it takes it, you, and it's done. <laughs> it's like, here's your Markdown. So you can write a normal PowerShell command and just do, like, the kind of built-in kind of comments say like mm -hmm. okay here's the description you can do all that and then give it to this module run a command and it turns it into a markdown file so like mm -hmm. just kind of like a text-based file that you could i yeah. guess give to some other website and it could display the help or mm -hmm. i guess all kinds of things yeah exactly and there's a ton of tooling out there as well to take that markdown and turn it into static web content as well um and that was one of my other summit talks this past summit two weeks ago was like I like good docs and I cannot lie. Like here's here's how you can take your function code, turn it into markdown, and then publish it as online help. All in your build pipeline. Like you don't have to worry about anything, but making sure that your script has or your function has common based help inside of it. And then let tooling take care of the rest. Right. So if you're out there and you're building modules, you don't have to have everything figured out in every single way. Focus on your PowerShell. Watch Stevie's talk, go through it one time, <laughs> figure out how to automatically turn your comment-based help into files, into a website, into the whole thing, so you can have this good experience forever. And once you kind of go through that initial burden of figuring out, okay, wait, what is all this stuff? There's markdown files, there's a static site generator, whatever. Once you go through that, you can now bring that with you to other projects. Yeah, easily. like it's it's just part of everything I do now. Like I know that I'm going to write comment-based help in my function code. And I know that I'm going to have a step in my pipeline that converts that comment based help to markdown. And I know I'm going to have a step in my pipeline that takes that markdown and converts it to static content and publishes it somewhere. I use GitHub pages because it's free and it's part of the yeah. repository and it just works. But you could use like Hugo, for example, to host that static content. You could use Netlify to host that static content. Like the thing that hosts it doesn't matter. Once you've got the static content generated, you can host it wherever you want. You can put it behind Nginx, Apache, IIS, uh, Azure websites up there, 
GitHub pages, like I said, anything that can serve a website, you can dump that static content to and get a website out of it. So it doesn't matter where cool. it goes at the end of the day. I, I want to point out, we talked about, do we have time to want to talk about APIs? And then we, we spent a bunch of time on documentation. Very little on APIs. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's documentation is kind of near and dear to my no, heart. No, it's that's, hard that's to a get fantastic. Me. I, I'm sure uh, Sean's going to listen to this episode and he's going to be excited. It's I hope true. so. I hope so. Docs are important, man. Docs rock. Uh, and also to kind of put a cap on the API thing that we mentioned earlier, definitely read the documentation. And if you're really struggling and you haven't developed an API module or you're confused, submit a post to somewhere, yeah. right? We've mentioned the forums, the Discord, Slack. Put it out there. Put what you've tried, yeah. what you're trying to use, maybe an example, because it can be really confusing the first time you kind of deal with APIs. Yeah, it can be until you like get your head wrapped around what an API is asking of you. It can be daunting. But once you have some muscle memory and you've done it a time or three, like it does get easier. As with all things, the more you do it, the easier it gets. So yep. I, I know I struggled a lot with APIs at first. But now I can read a Swagger doc and whip an API module out of it in no time at all. Um, yeah. It's like everything else. It's like really confusing the first time. But once you break yeah. that, it's, you can just go right back to it. And it's so useful. APIs are everywhere. They are. There, There's an API on the back end of like freaking everything. Yep. And, and even outside of a PowerShell context understanding how APIs work on a high level, or at least some of the insides of how things are being sent explains how a lot of the world works. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Like data flow, like you get a really big understanding of how data gets shuffled around different places. If you understand APIs, um, which is super helpful. So yeah. sorry, people, we didn't go super deep, but APIs no, are that's, awesome there. That's fine. And if you are working on APIs or whatever, and you're, Kind of riding the struggle bus and beating your head against the wall like i'm stevie coaster literally everywhere twitter discord slack github reach out like helping people level up is very very near and dear to my heart so if i can help just let me know yep and i can confirm if you just reach out to stevie i've done it before just ask him about something if you've seen he's done something similar in the past um and he will help you out and yeah then, i mean you might get a book of a response back but i will kill you with a information <laughs> right you never did swing by to help me move my couch though well there's a difference between <laughs> writing code and physical labor there george <laughs> let's be real here <laughs> all right well thanks for Swing by to talk to us. This was awesome. I, I like your take on on your because your experience with end users and how them keeping them in mind helps make better code. I think is yeah, a being pretty important being empathetic to their experience. All right, and I, I think it's uh, we flipped a coin and it's Andrew's turn to shield. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, if you have enjoyed this podcast or even if you haven't, please leave us a five star review. That's right five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. Um, we'd greatly appreciate it. Let's spread the PowerShell love to the world. Woohoo! Thank you. If we are not five stars, how could they let us know on how to improve? Hit us up at PowerShell at PDQ.com and we will take your feedback to heart. Kindly appreciate any compliments and kindly consider all feedback. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for coming by, Steve. 
All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Stevie. Thanks for listening to the PowerShell Podcast with your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plough. They are cunning, capable, agile, flexible. The PowerShell Podcast is a production of PDQ.com.